Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. We deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Horan. Welcome to this episode of Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, John Horan, oral historian, and I'm here with a couple of really interesting folks here in the archives. I've got three featured guests, two you'll know from previous episodes. We've got Lauren McCoy. You might remember her from our Halloween episode. And if you don't, I highly recommend you give that a listen. Glad to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. And we've also got Josh Hager, another veteran of our podcasting team. Thanks, John. Always happy to be here. He was also on the Halloween episode, so I, once again, can't recommend that one enough. And hopefully you've already listened to the first two parts of this series. All right. And then finally, a rookie to the podcasting world, but a great member to our podcasting team, we've got Shauna Carr. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. So this is, as Josh said, part three of our series of the journey of an archival record, how it goes from a piece of paper on somebody's desk to in our collections and then finally viewed by a researcher or the public's eyes. We left off, like I said, talking about reformatting as a way of processing records that come to us. We had Ruth and Alex that spoke to many different ways. The imaging unit at the archives reformats records as a form of preservation and access. This week, we'll talk about the next step, after accession and processing, and that is digitization and public access. So the first question is, why digitize an archival record? So the next step after processing is digitization. You may be wondering, why digitize an archival record? But at its most basic level, digitization is simply another form of reformatting. That's one of the main reasons why it came about in the archival world in the first place. It's a form of preservation for those items that are very fragile, difficult to use, or that take up too much space. So we digitize to preserve. It's another way of reformatting a record for public access. The archives first started digitizing in 1998 with the project Studies in Scarlet, a selection of which is accessible online at the NCDC website under the collection titled Women, Marriage, and the Law. Originally, that project was in collaboration with several other institutions, including the Harvard University Law Library, the New York Public Library, the New York University Law Library, Princeton University Libraries, the University of Pennsylvania Law Library, and the University of Leeds, UK. So definitely go check that out if you're interested in researching the legal, historical, and cultural aspects of marriage and other personal relationships in the U.S. and the U.K. from 1815 to 1914. That's really fascinating. Something you said just then, a selection of which, that, that phrase popped out to me. I want to know, why is it simply a selection and not the entire collection? Yeah, so digitizing by subject is an interesting way of selecting records for digitization, which we'll talk about later. But essentially, the Studies in Scarlet project is an overarching project from multiple universities. So what we have is simply a selection of the whole Studies in Scarlet project. And our selection is, in fact, a selection of materials from different collections at the State Archives. So we selected materials from different collections that relate to women marriage and the law and submitted those as our contribution to the overall Studies in Scarlet project back in the late 90s, I think. Yeah, and it relates back to our discussion in our last episode. 
we found out from Alex that when you process a collection, you want to preserve what's called original order. You want to preserve, you know, the way the collection came to us. And we process state agency records by the creating agency. Uh, so in this case, this particular collection includes something like uh, divorce petitions, but those are going to be originating from the General Assembly in the early part of the 19th century, and then in later years it's going to be from county records. So you can't just say you're going to scan all the state records and all the county records because it's all from different collections. So if, there, if you want to do a collection on a subject, you're going to have to pull from various ways just because of the nature of how we process our collections. So it's a direct result of what Alex and Ruth talked about in our last episode. And with Studies in Scarlet, you know, we have a, a selection available, and we're probably one of the few that still has those digitized records available online, and that's because of how long ago they were digitized and the different ways that the whole world of digitization has changed over the last 20-plus years. What was a really good scan then is not a really good scan now, and most of those scans were black and white. So even though you can view them in our digital collections, you might not be able to find the rest of the whole project online. And we've even re-digitized some of the materials to make them color and just better quality. That's a really fascinating point about the shortcomings, the pitfalls of digitizing. So, you know, what are, give me some more. What are some other drawbacks to digitizing materials? So many see it, digitization as the easy solution to preserving any record that may be deemed at risk, and it, in, in a lot of ways it is. Quick scan, a little descriptive metadata, post it online, and you're good to go. But what we need to keep in mind is that digitization is not a complete form of preservation. It has its drawbacks, mainly that it constantly needs to be updated. It is not a closed loop, one and done process. These days, advancements in technology move so rapidly that in order to maintain access to digital copies of records requires constant updating every three to five years or else you risk systems growing obsolete, jeopardizing access to those digital copies. And that has its own problems too. As the number of materials being digitized increases, so too does the amount of time it'll take to maintain and update those items. Think the amount of manpower and the funding that an institution might have to give that manpower. So as the world has come into the digital age, the easiest way for users to gain access to materials was and still is digitally. We've seen that clearer than ever these past few years with the pandemic restricting physical access to materials by the public. People now more than ever do their research, their homework, all their searching online. It makes sense that the public should be able to access records that way as well. More and more institutions require some form of digital component now. They all realize you have to meet your users where they are in order to stay relevant, especially for public and academic libraries, and we are no different. Plus, not everyone can make it to our location to get hands-on experience with these records. Even then, some records may be too fragile to be physically handled by patrons. Providing digital access not only allows for preservation of information, but you reach a wider audience. Now, anyone with an inter internet connection and a curious mind can view our materials, and that satisfies the fundamental element of our job, which is to provide access to information entrusted to us by the communities that we serve. That leads me to another interesting thought. What how do you decide what gets digitized? <laughs> Good question. First, we mainly digitize documents, bound volumes of government documentation, images, and audio video. We don't typically digitize any type of artifacts here at the archive. 
that's more museum work. And then also for obvious reasons, we don't digitize any restricted records due to privacy or policy concerns. And those records will have been flagged in the accession processing phase or spe specified by the donor ahead of time. For example, we have a small collection of Lillian X and Clements papers, including her diary. But due to the fragile state the diary is in, we've made several paper copies, which you can find throughout her boxed collection. However, it's noted in the catalog that to view the diary, patrons must request permission, a stipulation that would have been included in the donation paperwork. So if you're interested in viewing her collection, we've actually just added it to the Women, Marriage, and the Law digital collection. And allow me to point out, if people don't know, Lillian Exum Clement Stafford was the very first female member of the General Assembly. And she was elected before women were allowed to vote. Yes, indeed. So quite the amazing woman in North Carolina history. Well, there's got to be a story there. How do you get elected without 50% of the population? Anybody want to share that story? I don't know the full details, but I do know that she was elected out of Asheville, and she was the choice of the the Democratic Party, I believe, in Asheville. She, it was, the nominee was chosen by the party at their convention, and remember, in, I mean, this is a time period that it's the solid South. If the Democratic Party nominated you to be the legislator, you were going to win. So once she had the endorsement of the party bosses, the election was sort of a moot point. Uh, but the fact that she was able to get the nomination at all is amazing. There, there are other reference works about her in the state library, and we have, like Shauna said, we have her papers online. So I encourage you to look up her life story. It's amazing what she was able to, to do. She served in the General Assembly for a few short years, and then she served in education and ran some institutions before she died an untimely early death of virulent disease. But she had an amazing legacy for North Carolina, and we're really happy that it's part of our digital collection. Yeah, that, that, terrific. Thanks for sharing that piece, and, and back to the digitization of documents. How we decide what gets digitized. Mm -hmm. So um, the process of selecting a collection here to digitize happens um, once a year. Any department's allowed to research and present a maximum of five projects for potential digitization during the digital proposal selection phase. Those five projects can include the digitization of records from multiple collections or focus solely on one collection's complete digitization. Whatever the case, the person wishing to digitize the material must fill out a form outlining the specifics of the collection and give an explanation for why they feel it should be digitized. Given how small our digitization unit is, three people total, including myself, we can only take on so many digitization projects at once, and this way we all get a chance to evaluate the options presented to us. After those proposals have been submitted and evaluated, project selection will be decided by the management team, which includes the head archivist and all department heads. Those will then be our projects for the upcoming year. Management team will prioritize what should be worked on first, um, usually a first, second, third priorities type situation, and then Digital Access Branch uses that to figure out everyone's work for the next year. See, that's really fascinating. So you've got these priorities and, you know, this one first and this, and we'll, we'll all chat about it together, the three of us. So, but how are the priorities determined? I think there's a, a lot of different things that go into it, but one of them is materials that are often requested in the search room that are in high demand by researchers, and we'll talk about that a little bit later too as well. But, um, and then another is current department initiatives. So right now, you may not be aware of it yet, but the 250th anniversary of the United States of America, July 4th, 1776 to July 4th, 2026, it's coming up. And 
the department is starting to roll out a lot of programming aimed at commemorating those 250 years. That has led to materials from the Revolutionary War and materials that fit some of the themes that the department is using as a tool to reflect on the last 250 years. Those have been prioritized. So if you go look at our digital collections, I feel like every few months I see that little new sticker pop up on like a Revolutionary War themed digital collection as we're getting more and more materials up in preparation for that big commemoration in 2026. And of course, there are other factors that can play into it. It's possible that Arrangement and Description has just processed a collection and they feel that collection is really interesting and or it's really fragile and they think it needs to be digitized as soon as possible. So going back to our work from last week, it could be something that we appraised. And remember our episode one, we talked about appraising records as having historical value. It may be something coming in that's incredibly important uh, on a recent historical event that we think needs to be online for people as soon as possible. There's also grants that we get. Recently, you'll if you know visit our digital collection site, you'll see a recent addition is our Colonial Court record group. And we digitized, I believe, in full. And that was because one of the federal granting agencies was actually focused on Colonial Court records and wanted state institutions to submit grants about Colonial Courts, which we were able to submit to and received a grant for. So that was a priority set by a granting agency, but we were happy to work with them to fulfill their priority, but also get some great records online. Got a hankering for history and you want to know more? The State Archives in North Carolina has three regional facilities to better serve you and all your history needs. Check in and check us out at the Outer Banks History Center in Manio, the State Archives in Raleigh, or the Western Regional Archives in Asheville. Thank you for your support. And now, back to the show. This is great. So we have a sense of the priorities and we got some pitfalls in there. But what exactly does digitization entail? Here at the State Archives, to preface, the digital services section is divided into two. So you have the main part of digital services, which consists of the section head, the digital archivist, and the systems integration librarian. They are responsible for the development and maintenance of the division's digital repository of born digital and digitized records and materials, including the transfer, ingest, and preservation of born digital and digitized records. They also manage the development and maintenance of the division's digital systems, including the North Carolina Digital Repository and archives management databases. So they provide guidance on digital preservation for staff and ensure the security and authenticity of the NC digital repository. And then you have my section, the digital access branch. We take care of scanning, metadata, and uploading all those records online for public access. We work in conjunction with the imaging unit to scan or reformat records for digital use. But the bulk of our work rests in the creation of metadata. Metadata, for those who don't know, is data describing or giving information about other data. So in this instance, it's data describing the records we've digitized. It's all of that descriptive information you see online that accompanies a record. Think the title, the date, the subject headings, time period, etc. All the identifying information that pops up when you click a record in a collection on the NCDC website. We create all of that for every single item that you see. So once that's done, we use Content DM to upload the records to a collection online for public viewing. Either we a pre-existing collection or we create a new collection. So all of our doc documents are loaded to 
the North Carolina Digital Collection website. Audio recordings, including oral histories, are uploaded to the Internet Archive, and then our video recordings um, usually go to YouTube. So once all of that's done, the other half of digital services kicks in and handles the rest. That's anything dealing with the long-term storage of the digital files we created. Think cloud backups and off-site servers and the digital repository. Now a collection's live on the North Carolina Digital Collections website. And for our digital and physical holdings, it's all about public access. I love it. Yeah, so public access for the digital stuff is through... North Carolina Digital Collections, but where do, where do people get to see the physical? Yeah, so we've talked a little about digitization and digitized records. One thing we don't have for you is an exact number of how many of our records have been digitized, because that is very difficult, especially when we're ingesting records nearly every day. But it's definitely a very small fraction of our overall holdings. We've got millions of documents in the state archives and so those that aren't online, you can see by coming to the State Archives on 109 East Jones Street and visiting our search room. There, our wonderful reference archivists will help you find your way to the records that you need to answer your questions. So yeah, you mentioned reference archivist. What does that mean exactly? So reference archivist is kind of a rare breed of archivist that you'll, they're not quite as widespread as they used to be. A lot of divisions have different staff members serve as reference and reference throughout the week. So we're a little unusual in that we do have set aside reference archivists. So you can think of us as like a tour guide or a pathfinder, an interpreter. There's lots of different ways to think about it, but essentially our job is to help you get to the records you need. And that might be on just on a physical level, but it also might be on an intellectual level. So we're the end goal of everything else that y'all have been talking about for a while. That is you, the public, coming in and requesting to see a record and us providing it after it's been through all of the processes of being appraised and processed and described. Now we're there to facilitate you being able to get access to it. So how do reference archivists facilitate that public access? Like I said, there's kind of two aspects, this physical and intellectual. So we literally physically retrieve documents for you, right? We show you how to fill out call slips and how to view the materials in a way that's safe and takes the best care of the materials. But one of the more robust aspects of our job is helping you on an intellectual level with your research. So one example of this that I use uh, a lot of times with our tours is if you've seen Captain Marvel, there's a scene in there where they go to this big old archive in the middle of nowhere and they just walk in and it's like within a few minutes they're looking at the box that has the exact information they need. In the theater, I'm just laughing. Like that would never happen <laughs> without the help of someone to direct you on how the records are organized and you know, what box number? How did they just, you know, they didn't, they didn't. It's a movie, it's fiction. So <laughs> we know a lot about records at the State Archives because we work with a lot of different records. Behind the curtain a little bit, before I'm in my current role as a records analyst, which I talked about in the first episode, I was a reference archivist. And 
you know, whenever you're once reference archivist, always a reference archivist. Absolutely. But the way I put it when I worked in references, it's like the Forrest Gump quote, reference is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get because every right. day you have no idea. It could be somebody coming in doing their PhD on economic reforms in the 19th century. The next day it could be somebody doing their family history that goes back to you know, the immigration here in 1900. And the next day it could be a lawyer looking for, you know, precedent for a land use case in the state right. agency record. So you really never know what you're going to get. So it's, it's all over the place. And through that, we're able to learn a lot about the records. And that helps us every day to build up a bigger repertoire of knowledge to help you with. Every time that you come in and interact with a reference archivist, we're doing something that you may not know, realize we're doing, called the reference interview, in which we use our personal knowledge past experiences and reference materials to help guide you to precisely the records at the state archives that are going to assist you in your research. That it sounds a little bit intimidating. I mean, unless you're, you know, an alien, like in Captain in the Captain Marvel example. <laughs> or maybe Samuel L. Jackson is just a really thorough researcher and on the drive over he mm. just looked things up. I have to believe that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I that's where I'm going. But if that's not the case and you have to go through a reference interview, I mean that sounds pretty intimidating. What is that? Really, it's us asking a lot of questions to you about your research. And the great thing is kind of like, it shouldn't be intimidating because you're the one researching it. This is the stuff that you know, right? Like you you have looked into this topic. This is the thing that you are passionate about. And now you're bringing that passion into the search room and we're taking it and kind of helping you contextualize it within the parameters of how things work at the state archives. So we're taking your desire to figure out, for example, how these two people in your family tree are related. And we're asking you questions about where they live, what other information you know about them, to help guide you to the right county and the right record series, and then eventually, hopefully, the right record to give you that answer. Josh described it the other day as like a, like a flow chart. Um, I really like the example that you used. Yeah, I mean, it really is thinking about, you know, when somebody comes into the search room, and especially if they're if they know the topic really well because they usually do mm -hmm. but they don't know how archives work they may come in and say you know for example i am let's say that when i was using earlier i'm looking for records on economic policy in the early 1900s i'm doing this phd this dissertation on early years of the national bank whatever they might not know that, okay, we have a treasurer's and comptroller series that could be helpful to them. Mm -hmm. Or we have the general assembly session records that could be helpful. They might not realize that the governor's papers in that time period are split between correspondence that comes in versus correspondence that goes out, which is going to be different. They might not realize that we have private collections that may include information from bankers or account books from businesses that are going to show financial reforms. So it's a flow chart because you have to be like, okay, within that context, are you more interested in the people making the policy decisions? Are you more interested in the, in the statistics? Are you more interested in the repercussions? And then within that, okay, which record group can I think of that is going to fit this? And sometimes I might not know. You can't be an expert on everything. So <laughs> that's when we you know, go to yeah. digital collections. We go to our catalog doc. We go to other reference materials because it might be, okay, I'm not an expert on economic policy in the 19th century, which by the way, I'm not. So you go to the, you go to the catalog and you're like, okay, I didn't realize that 
this state agency was involved with this. And mm -hmm. that's because of the arrangement and description we talked about last week. You'll have that information in the catalog to go find it and say, this is actually a collection that you want to check out. And we'll help you pull the right box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You as the public comes in in a variety of different places in your research. So you might know exactly what you're looking for, or you might want to come in and just talk to us to find out more about our collections and what we might be able to offer you. Which is actually another example that I had, and that's and sometimes people are experts in the field. Sometimes they come in with less experience, and that's totally fine. The most common example of this is somebody coming in saying they want to build their family tree and they've never done genealogy before they want to start. But we did have a, one example. We had a college student come in and say, I have a paper due tomorrow on slavery in North Carolina. I need to see everything you have in the state archives on slavery in North Carolina. To which my jaw visibly dropped. And I almost said, well, do you have a time loop or a TARDIS that you could use to, to get all this in in one day? But I didn't. <laughs> Instead, what I did is I helped this person you know, can realize that that's a way too broad of a subject. There we have thousands and thousands of potential records that could match this. And frankly, there's no way you can cover even a sliver of it in one paper, let alone in the time period, but even if you gave yourself enough time. So let's narrow it down and let's pick something more specific. So in that particular case, we, we went and found in the county record series, there are some counties that have records of enslaved persons and free people of color as special series. So I asked him which county he was from. That county had one of those. So we pulled that series and he looked through those records and was able to get some interesting uh, examples. I believe it was related to um, civil actions concerning enslaved persons in like in the antebellum years. So it was a much more specific example of civil actions in that county it was much more specific, but he, was, he had a better paper as a result. And it's something he could look through in a day. So sometimes with the interview, it really is to, like the, a reverse pyramid. You're starting very, very broad, and you have to get them to a point mm -hmm. where this is actually what, they're, what they can use. And honestly, when people are in digital collections, they might be doing the same thing on their own. You know, with, with mm -hmm. those larger collections like Studies in Scarlet, they have an idea of the subject. They, uh, they want to study women's history. But within that giant collection, what are the records within there that are useful and there you were using searching using metadata tags like that Shauna's team creates but you're still trying to narrow that down because you can't write a paper or do research on everything in our holdings it's just not physically possible and it's not all there either absolutely yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great point right so why if things are getting digitized regularly if things are available online why am I trying to come in to the to the to the reading room? Why why don't I just look things up on my computer in my pajamas at home as COVID has taught us to do? <laughs> well, you can always do that, and you can always email us, and a, and a reference archivist will help you figure out what might be online related to your topic that you can look at from home. But as we've already discussed, the vast majority of records, especially those related to 20th century state agency, where you're seeing a lot of, we, you have a lot of important records dealing with civil rights, with growing equity across organizations in the state. You've got records related to, um, especially people with disabilities, getting, getting more and more uh, care and recognition. That kind of stuff is not online yet, and hopefully one day, pieces of it will be. But for now, 
like we said earlier, we do try to digitize in line with the needs of our patrons and the, um, the African American Education Collection and the North Carolina Digital Collections is a, is a great example of that. We in the search room, we're seeing a lot of people coming in um, requesting records from the Division of Negro Education, which was part of the Department of Public Instruction. And that led to a lot of those papers being put online. However, I recently had a professor come up who I had sent him to that collection before. He, I think he's from Florida, but he really wanted to come look at them for himself. And for some people, you know, that may not be your shtick, but for some people, they really want to actually handle the physical record. I had someone just this morning, he was looking at some governor's papers about this privateer during the War of 1812. And he came up to me and he was just like, I, I always forget how cool it is to just handle documents that other people made 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it's cool. I get to do it every day. But also for some people, it's a really emotional thing, handling records that their ancestors held. A few years ago, we had a family come in looking for a letter that their mother had written the governor. And at first, I'm doing this reference interview, and you know the, the mental flow chart is, is going, and I'm trying to figure out how best to narrow down where in the correspondence of the governor it's going to be. And it turned out that the woman's brother was the, the only victim of Burlington's race riot in 1969. He was an innocent bystander, and her mother wrote the governor asking for justice for her son. And they were coming up on the 50th anniversary of his death, and her mom had passed away, and they wanted to see the letter. And they got to hold the actual letter her mom wrote, and they didn't realize that the governor had written her mom back, or someone from his office had, and they got to see that response. And it was an incredibly emotional moment in the search room, um, hardly a dry eye. And a really special thing that just, <sighs> it's really cool to be able to connect people with records like that. You know, their story is really hard, but her mom's original handwriting, her mom's original paper, all of that is preserved here. And they can come, uh, they can come and interact with it and know that it's being if I can expand on that a little bit, I think, you know, to to push back or to go back up a little bit, I think, Lauren, you and me, you and I and anyone who gets into reference, that kind of interaction is one of the reasons we got into this field, like that we mm-hmm. chose to get into, to have the ability to connect people to the information that they need, mm-hmm. the information that they want to see, the information that's important, because obviously we've learned in episode one that we have appraised it to be historical value, right? So everything mm-hmm. in the archives is has historical value, but it has more historical value to certain people. Yeah. Because it either is has a connection to them personally, like what you just said, or it's the professional thing they've been looking for for years. I'm, I'm thinking back to a researcher I helped several years ago who was a PhD student at, in a, I believe at NYU, she was looking at education records in North Carolina in the 20th century, did a, a deep dive into it, found things she never expected to find, and ended up, she's from France, and her work, um, when published over there, became really quite renowned, and now she's considered one of the preeminent experts in American education in Europe. So that was a major thing for her, and she'll still keep in touch with me about things she's working on, and, and so I correspond with her. And that's the kind of thing that reference is so special. 
and even if their interaction only lasts 15 minutes, somebody comes in and they find they already have the exact citation and they find the record they want, that may be the most special thing that person has done in a long time, is that connection with that record. And that's amazing. Seeing <laughs> that moment, there is nothing like it. And it makes all the work that we've talked about for these past three episodes meaningful. Yeah. Because we really are the keepers of memory and of culture here in the archives of North Carolina. And when the people of North Carolina and truly around the world, like I just said, get to use this, I mean, it's why we do what we do. And we're here every day from 9 to 5. Mm. Okay, not every day. Tuesday through, Tuesday through Friday, and then Saturday from 9 to 1. <laughs> here for you to come and experience, like, North Carolina's story as, as we are preserving and actively seeking it here at the State Archives. Yeah, these are all, I mean, just touching and uh, emotional in some cases stories. I think it's really fascinating. It's whetted my appetite. How about any other kind of physical collections that, that you, get, you see get used frequently in the search room? The governor's papers is one that we were just mentioning. That definitely, those definitely get used a lot, and they can be a real treasure trove. The Supreme Court case files are also a big one. Trial transcripts aren't kept at the county level, but the Supreme Court often has uh, a lot of information kept with, with those older case files, so people can find some really interesting information there. Secretary of State land grants are, are a classic as are the General Assembly session records, many of which are actually in the digital collections. And finally, one that I think of a lot that I guess I haven't actually seen anyone come in recently, but for a while there, we had a lot of people coming in asking to see the Dorothea Dix admission records, which became available very recently due to Sunshine Law, which I think Josh was around for. Yes, indeed. And, and as the records analyst, I guess I should explain that one and put on my, my hat from episode one again. Uh, Dorothea Dix, for those listeners who don't know, is now uh, going as a park in Raleigh. But what it was, well, Dorothea Dix, the person, was an advocate for mental health, which is why the state, when they opened their first um, asylum for uh, people who have mental health problems, they named it after her, despite her insistence that they, they shouldn't. Uh, uh, but they did. And so it was a giant campus in Raleigh near downtown that had thousands of people there throughout the lifespan of the institution. And when it closed, we got a lot of records from the Dorothea Dix campus, including admission records. Most of them had been closed, and the reason that they're closed is because there are confidentiality laws in place for medical records as well as for records of people who are institutionalized. So double whammy. Sometimes a triple if it, if it was a juvenile that had been in, in Dorothea Dix which is a, more restrictions on top of the restrictions. The Sunshine Law, any kind of Sunshine Law, is an act that grants access to confidential records after a set amount of time. Most states have a Sunshine Law in place for most confidential records. It varies from state to state on what that wait time is. In North Carolina, the Sunshine Law is 100 years. So most confidentiality provisions in North Carolina expire after 100 years. There are a few exceptions to that, but thankfully the Dorothea Dix admission records uh, did get included in that. So when the Sunshine Law passed, we had a group of scholars led by Dr. Uh, Robert Allen from UNC Chapel Hill come over and basically photograph everything that was open to them 
to create this database to examine the reasons why people were institutionalized and to look at the history of mental health and its treatment in North Carolina because these are some of the most complete asylum records or mental health records anywhere in the United States. And some of the causes are still recognizable to people today, um, like uh, schizophrenia, but then other causes may have different names. PTSD shows up a lot, but it would be called something different. Shell shock, for example, in the World War I era. Soldier's heart in the Civil War era is what they would have called PTSD. Um, and then you see some other causes that are just completely uh, abhorrent to see as a cause for inst institutionalism or being institutionalized, uh, such as being gay. Uh, and it's horrible to see it in there, but it's listed as the cause, homosexuality. Um, so yeah, it's a really fascinating study that they're working on. Other scholars have looked at it. People with genealogy have looked at it to see if their ancestors or someone that they were related to or knew would have been in there. Obviously, you can't see up to the present, um, but you know, going back in those early years. So yeah, Dorothea Dick's admission records, 1921 and earlier, are certainly a very popular record group. Yeah, all of that's really fascinating. I know I'm certainly interested in what's going on here. I know that I will be looking some things up after we close. So I hope we inspired some people to go in to the NCDC, the North Carolina Digital Collection, to come into our reading room, which is not 9 to 5 every day, but it's 9 to 5 <laughs> Tuesday to Friday, and then 9 to 1 on Saturday. Even archivists need a couple days off here and there. And I want to thank everybody here for spending their time with me today and teaching us about the digitization of records and access of both digital and physical records in the State Archives of North Carolina. Thanks for connecting us to the journey of a record and for connecting the docs. Thanks again for tuning in. Special thanks to our guests, Shauna Carr, Lauren McCoy, Josh Hager. To our producers, Brooke Chuka and Morgan Johnson. And finally, to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dotson. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com. <laughs>